Good morning. I would say it's a good Sunday. I managed to bring that out all on my own without spilling anything. And of that, I'm very proud. So I, I didn't do it for, for service. I had Jay bring it up for me the first service. And then I decided that I could handle it from there because I'm a strong, independent woman. So I have a couple announcements for you. We are not doing, um, we're not doing life group training this service. Obviously, you're not interested in attending that because you're sitting in service. But our next one plug, if you would like to host or lead a life group, our next training is August 27th during second service at the 142 building. Be there. It's super awesome. Life groups are amazing. I love them. That's my job here. Um, second announcement, pack the pack. We have some exciting ways for you to partner with us for that event. It is August 19th. We are in need of volunteers, and we are also in need of donations. If you saw the display on your way in, there are little cards for each child in need that you can adopt a child, get their school supplies for the year, make sure that they are set up for success. Otherwise, we do have some general needs. We like to have backpacks that are more generic and available for any kids that may walk in the day of that are in need. Um, and that's on our Amazon wish list, and you can find that at packthepack.org. You can also find the link to volunteer there as well. If you've been with us for a while, you would know that we are in the book of Matthew. We teach expositionally here, and so what that means is we go through the Bible verse by verse, and we take topics as they come up. We've been specifically in the Sermon on the Mount this summer, which is really exciting. Last week, Jake spoke on the wide versus the narrow road, and today I'm talking about what true discipleship looks like, which is found in Matthew 7:15 through 29. Just a little bit of quick background on the book of Matthew. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And so in the book of Matthew, you're going to see a lot of references to messianic prophecy, to Jewish culture, and to some of their history. And it's really beautiful because all of it points to Jesus as being the Messiah, the Son of God. It points to Jesus' deity, and it's really, really incredible. Matthew is one of the three synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic in Greek, it just means same view. And so what that means is that a lot of times you'll have the same stories told in those three. They actually pull different parts of each other's gospels as they were writing them to compose their own stories. And then John, John kind of goes on his different path. All of them are true, but he just chooses to tell different stories about Jesus and relies less on what the other three have to say. So back to Jake's message from last week. He did a really phenomenal job. If you haven't listened to it, you should check out our podcast and give it a listen. He talked about the wide versus the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Just to recap his message, the wide and the narrow gate, that is the first step to true discipleship. It's making a decision for Jesus. The wide and the narrow road here, they're not necessarily what's hard versus what's easy. What we see is that it's popular versus unpopular. The road that many people take versus the road that few choose to take. And that's the first step. It sets the stage for what we're talking about today. That argument of life versus death wide versus narrow, the two options was really, really popular in rabbinic teachings at the time. They oftentimes taught things as choosing between life and death. So Matthew, of course, includes this in his gospel, and we're left with the choice once again today, life or death. 
Today we're going to be going through the three metaphors that follow, and I believe that there are three things that we can learn about what it means to be a true disciple. The first is to be a true disciple, you need to produce good fruit. The second, you need to know God. And the third, you need to do God's will. We can get right into the scripture. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. One of the other things that I didn't quite touch on but is a common theme throughout Matthew's gospel is the kingdom of heaven. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, he doesn't just talk about the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card. He talks about it instead as an invitation to live in his kingdom, to be part of his kingdom. We look at the invitation, and it actually cheapens the gospel if we make it about getting to hell or going to heaven or just the destination, and we forget that God's invitation is not that simple. God's invitation is for us to bring the kingdom to earth and to be his co-laborers to bring the kingdom of God down, to live by opposite principles. And so we see this initially, the false prophets. It's really important to define what a false prophet is. A false prophet, we can look in Deuteronomy, and there are two things that classify a false prophet. The first being that their words don't come to pass. They give a specific prophecy about something that's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. And the second is that what they preach leads people to idolatry. It leads people away from the true message of God and onto a different track. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Numbers says that God is not like a man that he would lie. If God is telling a prophet something specific, and that prophet speaks it out and it doesn't come to pass, obviously it wasn't from God because God does not lie. God doesn't lead us astray. The second instance, I think, is more consequential. It leads to idolatry. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. It reminds me of the false prophets in Jeremiah's time. False prophets are not an old, they're not a new thing. They were around from the beginning of time and they're still around now. Jesus is still talking about them. False prophets are still a problem that we have to deal with. But it reminds me of Jeremiah's time. If you're familiar with Jeremiah, he, he, was, <laughs> he was not popular in his time. He was hated because of his message, because his message was that the Israelites were going to lose their promised land and that they were going to be sent onto an exile. They were going to lose everything that God had given them. And they were going to lose this not because God is cruel and vindictive, but because they had chosen time and time and time again to follow other gods, to follow other idols, and to not give God the obedience that he deserved. 
And so Jeremiah's message was one of impeding doom. It was not popular. The false prophets at the time, however, proclaimed peace. They said that everything was okay. Keep doing what you're doing. Everything is okay. There will be peace. And there wasn't peace to be had. It's a perfect, it's a perfect illustration of the wide and the narrow roads. Jeremiah's message was narrow. It was not popular, but it was true. The false prophets offered something that was much more comfortable, something more palatable for the people. That was what led them astray. The, ferocious, the ferociousness described with the false prophets, it's malicious intent. They intended to do bad. They intended to divide God's people. Speaking on behalf of God is a very, very serious task, one that should not be done lightly. If you go further in that verse in Deuteronomy, it actually says that false prophets are to be put to death if their message turns out not to be true. It is very, very serious to speak on behalf of God, and these people used it for evil. They perverted what was meant for good, what was meant, for, um, what was meant to lead people into relationship with God. They instead used to lead them away. One of the things that I read as I was preparing for this was that wolves don't wear clothes. There are no wolves' clothes. There's only sheep's clothes. There are sheep and wolf, wolves, and wolves sometimes wear sheep's clothes, but nobody wears wolves' clothes, right? Nobody says, I intend to do you harm. <laughs> I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to reel you in, and I'm going to pretend like I mean good for you. I'm going to pretend like I'm speaking on God's behalf, but actually I'm not, and I'm leading you to destruction. Nobody says that. They're deceptive. They're cunning. They lead people away. That is how they operate. The way that they're able to do this is that their message, to some extent, is plausible. It's made up of half-truths. It's not the full truth of God. It's not the full message, but it masquerades like it. It's close enough. And so this is where the fruit comes in. This is where we see that it's important to judge them based on their fruit because true character has a way of coming out. When we're talking about fruit, we can look to the book of Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Something significant about this is that when we look at it, it's tempting to say the fruits of the Spirit meaning that they're all individual fruits, and you can pick and choose and say, well, you know, patience sounds a little bit better for me today. Patience did not sound better for me today. I didn't choose patience today. Um, but you might be tempted to say, I'm really good at being kind, but I'm terrible about being gentle. I'm really good at self-control, but I'm really bad at having actual peace. But that's not God's intent. God's intent is one fruit. All of those aspects of character are meant to be cultivated into one true godly character, one instance of godly character. That's a synonym for the fruit of the Spirit, godly character. That's what we're seeking to build. That is how you'll be able to judge people's intentions. How many of you know that character ultimately leads to actions, right? If you have poor character, you can only act good for so long. You can only act right for so long before your true motives, before your true intentions, before where your heart is, and before your relationship to God is eventually revealed. That's why it's so important to focus on the fruit of the Spirit. We don't build this fruit of the Spirit just by trying to do good, because we can't. True character reveals itself. 
How we build this fruit of the Spirit, this godly character, is by seeking the presence of God in our lives day in and day out, allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of our good deeds. It's not the fruit of us. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit who is guiding us, who is teaching us. When we see the by their fruit used twice, it's called an inclusio. And what it does is it emphasizes that there are false prophets out there. There are people who will, te- who will preach peace when there is no peace, who will preach the opposite of the truth, but it is by their fruit. Focus on the fruit in that instance. We see thorns and thistles, which aren't necessarily good fruit, and they're not bad fruit, but what they do is they get in the way. It's the same way with these false prophets. They get in the way of the good fruit. They cloud out judgment. They add confusion to the people of God. They lead them away. Next, we see judgment. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Whoops. Can we go to the verse before that? <laughs> I skipped ahead of myself. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you'll recognize them. One of the things that I acknowledge I talk about often is symbolism, specifically in the Old Testament, and this is a classic symbol. Thrown into the fire means judgment. Whenever we hear talk of fire, we should know that God is talking not necessarily about judgment um, in the earthly sense of condemnation and you are a, va- you are a very bad person, I don't love you, I don't, I don't like you, but instead it's testing. It's testing. It's seeing whether or not your fruit is actually good. True character will show. We see that this is actually a direct quote from what John the Baptist had preached. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Behavior modification is very different from being born again. Like I said, true character will be revealed one way or another. It's going to start to show. And so if we aren't born again, if we don't truly accept the word of God, if we don't truly change our lives, this is what Jesus said, you must be born again. You must have a totally new life. Without that, you are not going to be able to produce true fruit in your life, and you're also not going to be a a true disciple. You're not going to be able to truly follow God unless you're born again. What this is talking about is nominal discipleship discipleship by name only. It's people that claim to know God, claim to love God, and yet their lives reflect something totally different. And it's a constant problem in Matthew. Like I said, Matthew is written to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were God's chosen, but what they chose was they chose to honor the letter of the law rather than the purpose. They chose to continually focus on what they were doing rather than being filled by the Holy Spirit, rather than actually knowing God. And as a result, they weren't able to bear fruit. They weren't able to do what was right. I have a quote in here from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're familiar with Bonhoeffer, he was, he, he was a phenomenal man. Um, he was a man of God. And he is one of the people that lived a very, very, very costly life for the sake of the gospel. As the name Bonhoeffer would suggest, he was German. And one of the things that he did in his time when he was on earth, was he spoke out against the atrocities committed at the hands of the Nazi regime. He was German, like I said. It was during, I can't remember if it was World War I or World War II. But he, um, he was martyred for his faith. He was put to death. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow 
and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God calls us to the narrow road. God calls us to a costly life, a life of sacrifice. We see later in Matthew, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the people that had chosen the letter of the law rather than the love. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have proclaimed the latter without rejecting the former. What we see is that the Pharisees had unintentionally become false prophets. They had unintentionally led the people of God to idolize the law instead of the one who gave the law. They missed the point. They focused on doing what was right rather than the results that that would bring. They failed to focus on justice, mercy, faithfulness, God's true heart. You must be born again. Luke puts a similar passage in his gospel, and he actually puts his right after um, the passage on the plank and the speck, which Trennan spoke on a few weeks ago. And what that passage deals with is hypocrisy. He's linking the hypocrisy between those who judge others and the hypocrisy of the false prophets, because in both cases, they claim to know God, they claim to know what's best, and yet they're far from him. It is important to bear fruit. A quick note on fruit. Like I said, it's not the fruit of our good deeds. It's not the fruit of our works. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We cannot expect to do it on our own. We need to continually seek the filling of God. We need to continually seek his presence because it is through that presence that we will be able to bear fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. We see the second thing needed of a true disciple. You need to know God. It's not not the desperate call of Lord, Lord, help me, help me, Lord. It's practical reliance and obedience. It's not an end-of-the-life call for God. It's a continued life lived, seated to his will, seated to what he wants for you. Because let me tell you, it may seem like the rules are empty. It may seem like they're just telling you you're not allowed to do anything fun anymore. I know what that's like. I didn't, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I found Jesus when I was 16 years old. And that was what it felt like at first. It felt like, okay, all of a sudden I can't wear the clothes that I want. I can't do the things that I want. I can't, it's just all these can'ts. But what I learned as I grew in my, in my faith and in my maturity was that everything that God asked me to put down, he gave me something even better. Anything that he asked me to give up was because it was actually separating me from God. Sin separates. That is its nature. 
And so when God asks us to give up something, when God asks us to be obedient to what he's calling us to, he's not saying it as a cruel father who wants to deprive us of good things. No, he wants to fill our lives with things that are truly good. He wants to know us. That's what this verse hinges on is the word know. When we look at the Old Testament use of the word know, it's the most intimate of relationship. When we look at know, we see it first in Genesis, and it's described as a husband knowing his wife. It's sex. It's intimate. It's close. When we talk about God knowing his people, it's just as intimate. It is him telling them, you are my people. You are my chosen. You are my special possession, my image bearer. You are dear to me. Knowing is important. When we look in actually the book of Amos, sorry, sound booth, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. We look in the word in um, Amos, we see that that word is used again. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. If you've read the book of Amos, it is not a fun read. It's a short read, but it's not a fun one. It's actually structured like a lawsuit. It, if you look at its structure, it is a classic Hebrew lawsuit, and it is God bringing all of the iniquities and all of the sin and all of the idolatry of Israel to them, and it's saying, this is all the ways that you failed me. Amos actually gives an illustration, it's one of my favorites, of a plumb line. He takes a plumb line and he holds it up against a wall, and he points out all of the ways that it varies, and he says, just like this, I have given you the law, I have given you the standard for what for what is right, and you've failed in all of these ways, and for this, I need to punish you. When you see it, it's easy to look at it and say, see, God is vindictive, God isn't kind, but on the opposite, this is one of the most kind ways that God could express knowing, because even despite of their idolatry, even despite of them continually not choosing him, God says, I know you. You are still my special possession. I still choose you. As part of my family, I have known you out of all the clans of the earth. I have known you. God uses the word know. How many of you know, if you're a parent, I'm not a parent, but some of the most loving parents tell their children when they're going astray. They tell them when they're doing things that are harmful, even if it's not popular with the child. God is the same way. He is too loving to not tell you when you're going astray. We see that the word Lord is actually Kyrie. Lord, Lord, Kyrie, Kyrie. And it's, it's the hearer calling Jesus master. But once again, we see that nominal discipleship. We see somebody that's calling out to him as master, teacher, rabbi. And yet, at the same time, not following his commands, not choosing to follow him. Jesus says later on, Lord, Lord, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's in Luke. Lord, Lord. He's frustrated. Because when we look at the word hearing here, when you hear, it's ekono, it's Greek. And it means not just hearing, but listening, taking heed. How many of you know there are people out there that there's nothing wrong with their actual hearing, there's nothing wrong with their ears, but they are a terrible listener. I know, I'm one of them. Um, Jesus is frustrated by this. He's saying, Lord, why are you saying that? Why are you hearing what I'm saying and not actually doing it, not actually putting it into practice? 
hearing versus doing was a really common debate at that time. The rabbis couldn't really figure out which was more important. One of the things that they like to do is they like to rank things and categorize things and systematize things. And so they're looking at which is more important, hearing versus doing. And they decided this is a really important issue that they need to debate on. And what they landed on was that it's actually more important to hear than it is to do. Because if you don't hear, how can you be expected to do? Jesus in this passage is obviously flipping it on its head and saying, no, 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 hearing isn't enough. I want you to actually follow. I want you to actually listen. I want you to actually give up something of value to follow me. We look at the use of the phrase on that day. Once again, it's symbolism. Back in the book of Amos, that was popular as well. On that day, that's where we see this huge motif of the day of the Lord in Amos. And the day of the Lord is apocalyptic. It's when, once again, deeds will be tested, when there's going to be testing and judgment. And, you know, once again, we see that there's, there's some testing. And what's confusing in this passage initially, is that the people here, they had good works. Exorcism, prophecy, those are good things. They had good works, and yet God still said, I don't know you. Away from me. I don't know you. We see in Mark and Acts as well um, that there are two groups of people that didn't know Jesus, and they actually used his name to drive out demons. In Acts, the man ended up the demon-possessed man, the demons didn't come out, but they recognized the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus was that powerful. The Holy Spirit was that powerful. And so what we learn here is that the miraculous and the works of the Holy Spirit do not justify a relationship with God. You can't have, because the Holy Spirit is powerful. The Holy Spirit is going to work no matter what. It, does, it isn't dependent on what we do anyways. And so it is entirely possible to have counterfeit works of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is free to do whatever he will do. And so if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that's not evidence of a relationship. You see these people, they aren't saying, what do you, Lord, Lord, I, I prayed all day, I, I talked to you, I knew you, I loved you. They're saying, I did this. I did this. I did this in your name. What this shows us is that there are good people that are doing good works that are still on the broad road, that still don't know Jesus that are still going astray, that are still disobedient and unrepented. The people in this passage, they would have considered themselves Christians. They would have considered themselves followers of God. They wouldn't have considered themselves to be evildoers or lawbreakers. But the use of the word lawbreaker in this sense isn't people who completely reject the things and the ways of God. It's people, it's the, it's the slow slide they reject a few things here and there. It's not a total rejection, but they're still not living right. And God says, I never knew you. It actually mirrors Peter's future denial of Jesus. He says, I don't know him. I don't know him. It's difficult to quantify and put into words how personal this rejection is for Jesus to say, I never knew knew you. I want to just give a word of comfort there. Obviously, this is a passage that's meant to be uncomfortable for us. It's meant to be a magnifying glass where we look at our hearts and say, do I, do I know God? Have I sought doing things for God over 
actually knowing him? Have I sought that over relationship with him? But let me tell you, if you're worried about whether or not you know God, he's a really easy person to know. Obviously, he's not a person, but he's very easy to know. To borrow from Michael's sermon from a few weeks ago, all you need to do is ask. He'll give it to you. Seek and you'll find him. Knock and the door will be open to you. God is easy to know, and not only that, he wants to know you. That's why he did all of this. That's why he continually forgave Israel. That's why he sent his son. He wants to know you. It's not hard to know God. You just need to focus on him and not on yourself. You need to know God. The other thing that I just wanted to highlight is, once again, in Matthew, a common theme is the deity of Jesus. He's proving to these people that he truly is God. And we see that when he says, then I will tell them plainly. He's interpreting the law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's offering his own interpretation, which was radical at the time. The Pharisees, the scribes, everybody at that time, they pretty much tried to stay in their lane and stay as close to Scripture as humanly possible. But Jesus instead is saying, no, this is what I say this has to do. He's also putting himself in the, judge, in the judge's seat. He's saying that I, I will tell them plainly. I will judge them. I will judge whether or not they know me. This is a claim to deity. We can move on to the firm foundation. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. We see therefore in scripture, a common question is, what is it there for? <laughs> and so in the previous two parables, we see that someone who knows God bears, bears good fruit, and they know him, and so, therefore, their house should be built on the rock of obedience. The foolish man is the one that is disobedient, builds his house on that, builds his life around that. The wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock of obedience. Obviously, the house on the rock is obedience. House on the rock is disobedience. And then the storms and the waves that come, those are the trials of life. Those are the things that knock us down, the things that are difficult. As Christians, our lives are never going to be easy. We're promised the exact opposite, actually, by Jesus. But what I can tell you is that they become easier to manage. Because once you know the peace, the care, the provision, the goodness of God the Father, you know that he has you completely covered and that you don't need to fear. Your house can stand firm on obedience. Now, as I was thinking about this, my husband and I built a house about three years ago now. And as we were building the house, one of the most frustrating parts of it, besides design choice differences between me and our general contractor, who's also my dad, um, <laughs> was the foundation. And yeah, it is funny. Uh, he's very Midwestern, I'm very not. And so we had some conflict. We worked it out, it's good. Um, but the foundation, it was a really frustrating process I actually made my husband look through our bills and figure out just how much things cost. 
And the foundation, just the foundation, cost only $1,000 less than all the lumber to build the rest of the house. It was the second most expensive line item. And I remember being so frustrated because I'm watching these men pour the foundation. I wasn't allowed to help. And I'm watching them, and I just see dollar signs as they're pouring all of this concrete. It was so expensive. I knew it was super expensive. And the th other thing that really frustrated me, I'm a very visual person. I'm very particular about how things look, as I hinted to before. Um, there are many discussions about how things look. You don't see the foundation. It's completely unseen. Not once has somebody come over to my house and asked to see it. Not once has anybody complimented me on the second most expensive part of my house. Nobody sees it. It's completely unseen. Not only that, it took forever to get everything right. We had to bring in special levels. We had to bring in something with a laser. I don't understand. Like I said, I wasn't allowed to touch certain things, and this was definitely one of them. Um, it took forever just to make sure that it got just so. But it's the same way with our spiritual lives. Building our house on the rock is costly. It's going to cost you some things to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a costly endeavor. Not only that, but a lot of times, the obedience that we build on, that's completely unseen. So often, it's the, the opportunities that we have to make a decision that nobody will know whether or not we chose what was really ethical, what was really good. Nobody sees that. Nobody sees the time that you spend praying with God. Nobody sees the time that you spend in your devotions. Nobody sees that time, and yet it's vitally important and costly. Not only that, but how many of you know, if your foundation is off, I don't know if some of you guys have some foundations that have gotten a little wonky recently, but problems will start to arise. Your doors aren't going to shut right. Your windows are going to be a little bit off. Not only that, but your house runs the risk of total collapse. I work in mortgages, and one of the things that we require on all of our properties is appraisals. It looks at the value of the house. One of the only structural things that we look at is the foundation, because we know that if the foundation is off, it significantly impacts the value, because all of that could be reduced to rubble if something were to come. If a, the right storm were to hit, everything could come crashing in. It's the same way with our spiritual lives. If we're not built on a rock of obedience, there, we run the risk of total collapse. If we build on the sand, it's not an if. It's not an if storms come. It's not an if waves come. It is when. Life is going to try to knock you out. It's going to happen. And so are you building your house on the rock, or are you building your house on the sand? Will your house stand the test? Will your faith, will your relationship with Jesus stand the test of the difficult things that come your way? Ignoring, ignoring where you're building your house is foolish. The only outcome that we see is total collapse. It may seem like you have it all, if you don't have Jesus in your life, it may seem like you have it all together, like you've done everything right. But what I'm telling you is it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. When that final shoe is going to drop, when that final thing is going to happen, your house is going to collapse. 
especially if you call yourself a Christian and you fail to build your house on that firm foundation, that costly foundation, things are going to get very, very difficult for you. I'm warning you. And so we're left with these three marks of a true disciple, and the worship team can come. Produce fruit, know God, and do God's will. The book of Matthew follows these three metaphors with a passage on Jesus' authority. If you guys could put that up, Matthew 7, 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They weren't amazed at what Jesus was saying. They were amazed at how he was saying it. The authority with which he taught. It was totally different from anything they had heard. A lot of us, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, I remember, actually, because I found Jesus when I was 16 years old, I remember the first time that I read through the Bible. I remember the first time that I read the book of John, distinctly. And I remember the first time reading through this. And it was, it was really interesting, because I had had this conversion experience, which is why I was reading the Bible. I was in church for about three months before I decided to give my life to Jesus for the very first time. And one of our youth pastors had come to me and said, you should start reading your Bible now that you believe this. And so I did. And I remember vividly being confronted with the reality of the gospel for the very first time in John. And while I had one moment of conversion and baptism, I really think that my true conversion began at that moment when I looked at scripture and said the same thing that I'm sure some of you are. Who is this man who is claiming these things? They're audacious claims. They are big claims. They are claims to deity. Jesus never claimed to be a moral teacher. Jesus never claimed to be put in this box of some good things. I think it was Thomas Jefferson. He went through the Bible and he, he cut out all the parts that he didn't like. And then he put together his own Bible and he's like, this is what I'm following. Jesus never asked us for that. He never claimed to be just a good teacher. He claimed to be God. And so we're confronted with us with this realization and with this question, who do you say I am? Who is this man who's teaching with authority? He's either lying. It's a, it's a, if you are into apologetics at all, it's a classic debate, the divine trilemma. He's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar, he's, he's not actually God, which most people, when you look at the life of Jesus, you can see that he is moral. He has godly character. He has ethics. How can someone who lives this way build his teachings on a lie? That's not very moral of him. I think we can collectively agree we can throw that one out. Next is lunatic. He is the most sane lunatic I've ever seen. He's coherent. He's consistent. He has no markers of schizophrenia, any sort of mental disorder. He's, he's perfectly lucid. He's not a lunatic. And so the only option that we're left with is that he, he really does have this authority. He really does have this status as the God of the universe. He is one who's teaching with true authority. So my question for you today is who is this man to you? It's the most important question you'll answer. It's the most important decision you'll make. Life, death, wide, narrow, fruit, no fruit. Knowing God, not knowing God. Doing God's will, not doing God's will. It is important. 
If we all want to bow our heads, close our eyes. I want to pray with you first, but um, there's something I want to ask you. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've never confronted the authority, if you've never truly given your life to him, if you've never agreed to the cost of following Christ, I want to pray with you today. Members of our team want to pray with you today because let me tell you, while that's a difficult decision and while that is an important decision, as someone who is, what, eight years in now, nine years in, that is the best decision that I ever made. It radically changed my life. Radically changed my life. When I was 16 years old, I was a devout atheist, and I wanted nothing more than to end my life. I'd written my suicide note. I had an eating disorder. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I was broken beyond repair. And then I met the most loving God, and he radically changed my life. I tell you this, this is my testimony. This is what God did in my life. I didn't think that I would live to see many of the things that I've gotten to. Every time there is a milestone in my life, almost every day, I'm not kidding, I'm confronted with God's goodness, with his love and with his care. Every day, thank you, God. I didn't think that I would get to see joy. I didn't think that I would get to see peace. I didn't think that I would get to see another day, but thank you, God, that you had a better plan, that you told me no, that you told me that you love me. That is available to you. God wants to know you. It is an important decision, but it's the best one that you could make. So if that's you, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, could you raise your hand because we want to pray with you. There's something to be said for a public acknowledgement that I'm not right with God. I need Jesus. There's nothing that I could do to earn this because I've messed up in so many different ways. Okay. I'm sure there are many people across this room. I was confronted by this passage. Do I know God? Am I seeking to know him or am I just seeking to do things that I think will please him? Am I seeking to actually know him? If you feel confronted in a new way, could you just raise your hand? Like I said, there's a physical implication. Physical, physical things that you do have such spiritual implications, okay? As we're going through worship, I just want you to take a moment, search your heart. God knows your heart, but I want you to pray. I want you to ask him, seek him. As you go about your week, make it a point to honestly seek him. He's easy to know. I promise you that. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for you. God, we're so thankful for your authority. God, we're so thankful that you know us. God, that you've chosen us. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us in a new way this week, Lord. I pray that we would know you better than we ever thought possible, God. I pray that you would bless each and every one of us, Lord. I pray that you would lovingly, gently point out the ways that we've gone wrong. God, help us to be flexible. Help us to listen to you, to hear your voice, to know you. Amen.